0: From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast.
1: She, she wasn't even on the front page, I was spending uh, the morning reading an IMF report about which of day.
0: Cheery, we're coming to you a bit less than a week after our previous edition, which was the morning after the night before.
2: I spent almost the entirety of the last week uh, looking at my laptop screen, reading news. <laughs> as, as I noticed you were in the on the world. World. faculty board yesterday. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Then we were looking at my computer screen, trying to find out what was happening in the world. We were hoping this time things would have settled down a little so that we could take a slightly more reflective view. Uh,
3: I had a throat license for breakfast. Sorry,
0: breaking news. Justice Secretary Michael Gove to stand for Conservative Party leadership. Interesting. Michael Gove, the BBC understands, is planning to run for the leadership of the Conservative Party and therefore... To be prime minister.
1: Fallout from the I'm yeah. <laughs> <I was quite laughs> pleased with that development. You're pleased, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. okay. Are we good to
0: go? <clears throat> right. Uh, I'm joined by Helen Thompson from by Livesey, Chris Brook, and I'm delighted Aaron Rapport is back. And I'm going to start with Aaron because we didn't hear from you last week. You've had a little bit more time than we did then to reflect on these events. You also. Possibly, though you live in this country, you have some perspective on it from overseas as well. How do you feel about what the people of the United Kingdom decided to do last week?
4: I was fairly surprised. I think like most of the people who had been tracking the polls, although I think after you've said for like the sixth time in a year, I was pretty surprised after what the polls have been saying. Maybe you should stop being so surprised when the polls uh, turn out to be wrong. But uh, I was also saying my American relatives have taken an interest in British politics that never bubbled to the surface um, before. And they actually know things like who Michael Gove is, um, so this
0: this breaking news will be dramatic in Minnesota.
4: Well, in in in, in the Rapport household, it, it might be. You know, I was trying to think about it from a transatlantic perspective, and um, when Obama was in the country a few months ago, urging Britain to stay within the European Union. He focused a bit on the U.S.-British security relationship alongside economics, which is what most people, most of the experts, political and otherwise, have have been talking about. And I was reflecting on uh, the nature of the ramifications for the U.S.-British relationship and security in general, and that's actually one area where I don't have that much concern in terms of what's happened as a result of of Brexit, simply for the institutional history between the U.S. and Great Britain, as well as the fact that I think the biggest concern might be that if you have a protracted kind of shrinking of the economy, then you couldn't have as much spending on defense as uh, the conservatives had had pledged. On the other hand, from the U.S. perspective, it might be nice to have British units that had been kind of uh, earmarked for EU missions to be tagged for NATO missions instead, but on the whole, that 's a fairly tangential issue to the numerous concerns that have arisen so yeah, if that's
0: the worst that 's going to happen, probably this is uh well the, the in, current state of in that
4: issue area panic is
0: overblown I think
4: I think the biggest concern again long term, which is the same thing that arose, and this is again speaking strictly on security issues that arose when the Scottish referendum for independence came about was what will happen to uh, trident
0: but even that and we 're going to come onto these things in a second in trident big question, big issue, important for geopolitics at the moment. It's all being subsumed in what's going on in the Labour Party. I don't think what Obama or anyone else thinks about it is the central issue now.
4: Oh, absolutely not.
0: So we're going to come back at the end to the question about looking on it a week on, whether we think that the initial end of the world, people running around saying the sky's falling in, reaction was overblown or not. Some people think we've overreacted, some people think we've underreacted. When I say we, I don't just mean the people around this table. I mean all sorts of people who've been commenting on this. Let's go from Aaron's broader perspective down to the more parochial and then work our way back up again. So the most parochial thing that's going on at the moment is inside the parliamentary Labour Party. So we're waiting to hear, I keep turning to my right to look at my computer screen, we're waiting to hear who may be going to challenge Jeremy Corbyn for the leadership of the Labour Party. We're also waiting to hear today there is a deadline for this one, which is for nominations for the leadership of the Conservative Party. It now looks like Michael Gove may be standing, which complicates things a lot. And we'll come on to that in a second. But let's start, Chris, I'm going to come to you first. Let's start with the Labour question. It's been a pretty extraordinary week in the Parliamentary Labour Party and then on the streets outside of Parliament as well. We were being told last night that some agreement had been reached that Angela Eagle was going to be the unity candidate to oppose Jeremy Corbyn in a vote that would then go to the members. But there's also been certain amount of scepticism expressed about whether that's the best they can do. Is that the best they can do?
2: In other circumstances, I think it, it might be the best that they can do. It might be not a bad candidate at all. Although Eagle didn't have an especially good bid for the deputy leadership last year... She came fourth. She came fourth. When Mr Corbyn was putting together his shadow cabinet, the outcry about excluding women from senior posts was very much focused on Angela Eagle, the case that she was a heavyweight enough front rank politician that she should have been shadow chancellor, or she should have had one of the, the most important posts in the shadow cabinet. She's a substantial politician in a way that so many of the members of the Parliamentary Party just are not. I think the great difficulty she'll run into is that she cast a vote to support the invasion of Iraq back in 2003. That's always going to be a difficulty running uh, against Mr Corbyn with his impeccable anti-war credentials, but it's doubly important in the week that the Chilcot Report is going to be published. And and to remind people that is due to come out next Wednesday? Uh, No, that's absolutely right. And The Corbyn people want nothing more than to be able to frame the leadership contest as being Mr Corbyn, man of integrity, man of principle, against a Blairite warmonger and so on. There are other votes that have a symbolic resonance. One of them is the vote on the welfare bill that Parliament considered last year that proved so instrumental in opening the pathway for Mr Corbyn to seize the leadership probably the PLP can't find a challenger who voted against that bill. But I think that fades in importance compared to the totemic significance that the Iraq war still has uh, in the imagination of the Labour Party. I mean, the other
0: question I think about Angela Eagle, I agree, she's a substantial politician, it's going to be assuming it happens, and we just don't know these things are unfolding on a day by day basis. But assuming that it does end up being Jeremy Corbyn against Angela Eagle, in a bid for the votes of the membership it's going to be brutal. And whoever does it has to be an incredibly robust politician as well as skilled. Now, I don't know. I mean, Angela Eagle, she she clearly is pretty tough. Um, But the people around Corbyn are having the time of their lives. I mean, that's the thing that I've really been struck by Corbyn himself. It's very hard to know what he's thinking. But John McDonnell looks like this is what he's always dreamed of, not Corbyn winning the leadership. It's this that he's always dreamed of, that this fight
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the uh, veteran members of the hard left, like Corbyn and McDonnell, have spent their entire adult lives engaged in factional conflict inside the Labour Party. This is what they do. These are the skills that they've developed over a very long career. What's striking about McDonnell is he seems to have some other skills. He's been quite interesting at... um, being the ringmaster in an attempt to develop a, a new perspective, new developments in labour economic policy, I think it's reasonably safe to say that Mr Corbyn doesn't really have any other skills other than those he's honed through keeping up the uh, the hard left end of the parliamentary Labour Party over his uh, long career in the in the House of Commons. So I'm not surprised that they're they're enjoying themselves. And Helen, last night Tom Watson
0: gave an interview to the BBC in which he clearly wasn't enjoying himself he looked very unhappy um, and like a few people increasingly teary-eyed by the end he was saying that his party that he served all his life and that he loved and is a vital institution in British public life and I think it is a vital institution in British public life was in uh, existential peril is it?
1: I think it is and I think it's in worse than the um, situation that we've been talking about so far that Chris has set out because what's going on at the moment in very crude terms is a conflict between the Corbynites and a conflict between the pro-EU Labour Parliamentary Party and actually that conflict says nothing to the great swathes of voters in Labour's old industrial heartland that voted out of the EU because they don't like free movement of Labour and so this political civil war that's going on is actually irrelevant to what has been an outburst of emotion from significant swathes of Labour voters um, has been building up for years and at this moment in time when the Labour Party is in existential peril has got no voice for it whatsoever. So actually there's a three-way conflict going on and that one part of the conflict, the part that's actually in some sense won in this political moment through the, the referendum, is entirely out of the picture.
0: So no one is in the Labour movement is speaking for those people from Bar The the fear for Labour always was, and I think it was assumed, the acute version of this was going to be a narrow win for Remain. We talked about this a little last week. And then UKIP would just clean up in the way that the SNP cleaned up. In Scotland, UKIP would clean up in the north of England. It's not clear what's going to happen to UKIP. Uh, the, The big funder, Aaron Banks, has started talking about founding a new party. Who knows it's quite difficult to found a new party. And even UKIP, it takes decades to get it off the ground. When people talk about an existential threat to Labour, we're still doing it in the context of a first-past-the-post parliamentary system. So someone has to, and they use the phrase from there will be blood, drink their milkshake. <laughs> <laughs> who's, who's, it, who's it going to be? Is it the Conservative Party? Is it, is it UKIP in, in some form? I mean, who, who's going to win these seats from them?
3: I think, for me, two things are likely to happen. I think you're going to see UKIP take a whole swathe of seats in the North, but as we've just been discussing, the crisis in the Labour Party is going to lead, for me, to a fracturing of the Labour Party. And you say it's hard to found a new party. It is. It's incredibly difficult. But essentially, I think you'll see 50, or 100 MPs potentially breaking away and forming a new party, attempting to rescue what they feel is the core of the party that they now represent. Because as you say, there are two distinct identities in an incredible tussle within the parliamentary Labour Party and in the wider Labour Party. It can't coexist. It has to ground itself in some place. And the only way that that then leads to some kind of
0: stability in the long run is if there's a change to the electoral system. But presumably the Conservative Party under whoever will come on to a second who might lead them will have no incentive to change the electoral system because it looks like this is going to work to keep them in a pretty solid majority for as long as Labour is tearing itself apart. Absolutely
3: and we were worried about the boundary changes you know 650 down to 600 seats and how that was going to bias in some ways towards the Conservative Party. This for me is an incredible tilt towards the Conservatives having uh, what's the best way to put it governments as far as the eye can see. Aaron I don't know
0: if you want to comment on the um, private grief of the Labour Party but how does it look like to you? I mean we talked a lot in the earlier episodes of this season of election when we were looking a lot at the united states about whether there are and aren't analogies with what's happening to the democrats the divisions between hillary and bernie and so on but this now looks like i mean there's there's almost nothing now outside of what's happening in the uk to compare it with is there
4: no, there really isn't. I mean, the division between Clinton supporters and Sanders supporters in the United States, well, very real. Now you see, uh, while Sanders still hasn't conceded and hopefully will by November, that uh, his supporters are, when when polled, again, here's the, the P word, but when polled, are starting now to flock to, to Clinton's side. I think uh, Elizabeth Warren, the senator from uh, Massachusetts, who has been supporting Clinton very vocally, has had a lot to do with that because uh, she's in some ways actually further to the left than Sanders is on some issues. So, no, the, the 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 rifts in the Democratic Party are being healed somewhat well. My overall impression, thinking about both the conflict within the Labour Party and over uh, the EU referendum in general has been, and, and this won't sound very complimentary, but it's not meant to be, is a series of people, and this is not atypical, I think, in politics, just missing the target, right? So you have a bunch of people who are upset about globalization and the free flow of labor, as, as Helen said. There's no sign that actually leaving the EU will do anything to address that problem. And then you have a bunch of people upset about the referendum result. And what we have now is internecine fighting, which goes back decades. While this might make for good politics, it doesn't make for very good policy, although oftentimes I think never the twain shall meet uh, between those two.
0: And just one more thing about the bernie Corbin. we should call them either both by their first name or both by their second name, the Sanders-Corbyn comparison. As Chris said, the, the key feature about Corbyn is that this is a 40-year struggle inside the Labour Party. And the key thing about Bernie Sanders is this is an 18-month struggle inside the Democratic Party. He's an outsider. There is no Sanders cell of hardened Leninists or whatever they are ready to do his bidding. And that makes all the difference in this context. You're listening to Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast. OK, let's come on to the Conservative Party now. I'm going to have my... This is where I do my regular uh, update. Uh, let's go to the Guardian site. Michael Gove announces surprise bid for Tory leadership. OK, so that changes a lot. Um, I also wanted to read you something from this morning's Times... I don't suppose this is written by Theresa May, but someone's written it in her name. And she says, If you're born in today's Britain, you will die on average nine years earlier than others. If you're black, you're treated more harshly by the criminal justice system than if you're white. If you're a white working class boy, you're less likely than anybody else in Britain to go to university. If you're at a state school, you're less likely to reach the top professions than if you're educated privately. If you're a woman, still you still earn less than a man. If you suffer from mental health problems... There's too often not enough help at hand. If you're young, you'll find it harder than ever before to own your own home. These are all burning injustices and I'm determined to fight against them. And then she goes on um, to say, we need to think differently about the role of the state instead of thinking of it as always the problem. We should acknowledge that often it is only the state that can provide solutions to the problems we face. So yes, the state needs to be small, but it needs to be strong.
3: So that. Can I ask if Theresa May is running for the Labour leadership or the Conservative Yeah, so leadership? I was
0: going to say the, the earlier parts of that did remind me of that Neil Kinnock speech, I warn you not to be young, I warn you not to be old, I warn you not to be. Um, and then the, the line about the state, I think, is very interesting. I mean, this, to me,
2: is a pretty interesting pitch. So I think Theresa May is always going to be typecast as the person most associated with the strong state. As Home Secretary, she's carved out an authoritarian reputation for herself. The Conservative Party likes authoritarianism, the smack of firm government, and she's running for leader in, or she's standing for leader, American politicians run but British politicians stand, she's standing for leader at a time when there's great uncertainty about the future of the state, its configurations, what kind of powers it's going to be able to exercise and so on. So I'm not altogether surprised that Theresa May is making this particular pitch, you heard echoes of Kinnock. To me, it sounded a bit like one part Ed Miliband and one part John Major. But Wow, f-
0: that's an electric combination.
2: But don't forget, more voters voted for John Major's Conservative Party in the 1992 election than have ever voted for any other political but party. They've ever voted for anything
0: in this in, country apart from to leave the European Union. Apart from to leave the European Union. Theresa May, I'm sure you're right, Chris, she has the advantage that she's coming from a reputation of competence, I mean, to be Home Secretary for six years. I mean, one of the extraordinary features of British politics, actually, is that the top three, if you don't think Foreign Secretary is so important anymore, I'm looking at Aaron here, um, uh, the top three jobs in government have been held by the same people for the last six years, which is unprecedented. And one of them is Theresa May. So she's got a reputation for competence and a certain authoritarianism, which she's now seeking to soften. Gobe entering this changes a lot. Presumably, it makes it even likely that Theresa May is going to win.
1: I think that it does in one sense, but I think that there are aspects of her position as Home Secretary, going back to what Chris said, particularly her, I don't want to just call it authoritarianism, but certainly her attack, say, on the European Human Rights Law, and indeed on the Human Rights Act itself, that is going to make her position a bit more difficult.
0: So can we talk about, I was going to talk about this last week and we ran out of time, there was too much going on, and there's too much going on today, but luckily one of the things that's going on is the Gover, as uh, Johnson used to call him, but now I expect he calls him something else. Um, the Gover said one of the more memorable things in the campaign, which we said a v- v- series of these, including at the end, he rather overdid it by making the comparison with um, Einstein and the Nazi scientists. And Gove made the point that um, it you know, didn't need a 100 of them if he was wrong, one would do. But it was part of the attack on expertise. And he said, and this is the thing I think people will remember him for from this campaign, that he said that people have had enough of experts. We need to be careful what I say here. Um, one of the things I've always been struck by about being in a university is that um, lots of people in universities really value expertise. But I'm just speaking for myself here. You know, we're all meant to be experts. But if you if you work in a university, you mainly see how little experts know. That's my feeling about it. I mean, I, I know what I'm meant to be an expert on. I'm really floundering even with that. And then to be pontificating about all this other stuff. I had some sympathy with Michael Gove and also I have some sympathy with the view that if it's the experts versus the 17 point, whatever it is, million, they know a lot of things that the experts don't know, Helen.
1: I'm entirely with you on this one. I think that, to me, the most worrying things about this campaign, and you can argue about whether various of Michael Gove's comments and other people's comments were very well worded, and I think you certainly should take the criticism for that. But one of the most worrying things to me is the cult of the claim to expertise that is floated around in our politics and has been bandied bandied around. There isn't any problem at all in valuing knowledge over non-knowledge. We should do that. But people can be experts about the past. Historians are experts about particular periods that they know about. But nobody, nobody can be experts about the future. It's just not epistemologically possible. It's also the case that if you look at economic forecasting, which was obviously used as one of the instruments, if you like, of the claim of expertise against the people in democratic politics, most of the time it's Pretty wrong, and that isn't because people aren't good at their jobs. They're often incredibly good at their jobs, but actually making these predictions about how much economic growth there's going to be in two quarters' time, let alone in thirty years' time, is incredibly difficult. I give you one example: back in July two thousand and eight, the ECB, the European Central Bank, raised interest rates at a time, a couple of months before um, Lehman bankruptcy. Uh, on the grounds that there was inflationary pressure in the Eurozone um, economy and that growth in the Eurozone economy was robust. As it turned out, the Eurozone economy was already in recession. It is impossible even to get right what's going on retrospectively for a few quarters, let alone you can get it right, as I say, decades decades in the future. And the final thing I'd say on that is, is on the basic political question that was at stake in this referendum... is is how much do you value economic prosperity versus how much do you value the question of who should govern this country? There is no expert answer to that. There is only a political contest. That's just the nature of democratic politics. Expertise can't allow us to choose between competing values. That's what democratic politics allows you to do.
0: I mean, one of the remarkable things about the campaign was the doubling down on the claims of expertise, given that the mood was so clearly anti-technocratic and not just, I mean, so people aren't themselves expert on economics, but they're not stupid. And they know that the economists and the economic profession and the people who've been prognosticating have been consistently wrong. And yet, during the campaign, there was this sense that it it just needed another push. And the other thing that is absolutely known by anyone who hangs around experts is that they're not good at knowing the limits of their own expertise. If anything, they're worse. I don't think this is the right word, but their sort of competence about their own competence is
3: terrible. That may be true, but I'm slightly terrified by this conversation because what we're leaning towards is a moment which says we either are technocratic or we are values-led. We are not. We have a mixture of all these things. It's not binary. Yeah, but the the vote was binary. The vote was binary, but, yeah, again, that's because it was a rubbish question to ask. The blending of values and the blending of expertise is what we really should be talking about and the ability, as Helen said, to kick in various uncomfortable places, people who essentially are telling lies, not whether they're expert or not, whether or not they're telling flat out lies. Let's take the 350 million claim and put it on the side of a bus again and talk about that versus expertise. Yes, the economics profession has not covered itself with glory for quite a long time. I am one of the first people to go and say most economists need to take a long hard look at themselves and they're Taking over of the policy process is one of the reasons why we got into some of these positions. But to say that we should now therefore have direct democracy plebiscite and everything goes away—yeah,
0: no, no one around this table is saying that.
3: Well, Bob? but then what are we saying? Because if we're saying experts can't come into the conversation, what are we actually saying? No,
0: we're, so we're not saying that. We're saying that experts are very bad at judging the limits of what they can do in this context. That's I think what we're saying, and I think they misjudge.
4: I'd like to give two cheers for expertise rather than a full hearty three cheers for expertise and I'll start with the I guess the anti-cheer expert which is Phil Tetlock who's a psychologist in in the United States and also studies politics and his colleagues have done a lot of work showing that actually uh, experts aren't oftentimes that good at predicting the future, as Helen pointed out, which might be uh, epistemologically a bit of a bridge too far. And they're not especially great at calibrating their beliefs, which means in, you know, kind of more less jargony terms, they're not great at learning from mistakes. That being said, you should differentiate between an expert on the one hand and experts as a community on the whole. So what experts as a community on a given subject area are quite good at, is laying out most of the plausible scenarios in which various series of events could occur after some antecedent condition, right? So if... Britain votes to leave the EU, here are the possible scenarios that could occur. They're good at understanding which indicators matter, which indicators don't. And again, I'm speaking about experts as a group in aggregate. This is something of the wisdom of crowds plus, right, having very specific issue area knowledge on the question that you're being asked about. In terms of, right, do I necessarily put a lot of weight on the opinion of any single expert in any given issue area? No, I don't. I'm not going to rush down to my, you know, local Ladbrokes or something and put a lot of money based on what I say about anything. But if you ask me, okay, well, 97% of climate change experts agree that mankind is actually responsible for it. Well, I'll put a lot of money on that. Thank you very much. It's
0: really interesting in the whole time we've been doing this podcast, I can tell this is the thing that we're most likely to kind of really fight about, even though we've been talking about politics all this time, because I immediately want to say things back to Aaron. Climate change and this are totally disanalogous. Chris. (laughs)
2: One of the things that I think is worth remembering about the referendum is that the Britain Stronger in Europe campaign was non-partisan or bipartisan or something like that. It contained supporters from both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party. There are two competing visions of European Union. One of them is the centre-left vision of a social Europe. The other one is the centre-right vision of a single market. And when the sides have to come together in a joint campaign. Both of those strands will be de-emphasised, and their common ground is this acceptance of a of a technocratic discourse. So it's not that the only case there is to be made for Britain in Europe is a technocratic one that leans far too hard on the claims of expertise. It's a function of the structure of the politics of the referendum campaign. And just as I think in the previous podcast, we were talking about the political genius of the take control slogan, the way that that helped Dominic Cummings and the Leave campaign – articulate a central message that really resonated with voters. In a sense, I think we can see Michael Gove's comment about the British people you know, not being so keen on experts these days as being analogous to that, a way of drawing attention to something about the Remain campaign that was true and was troublesome because you can't replace political judgment with technocratic expertise and you shouldn't want to. But there's something about the referendum campaign that meant for the remain campaign it was pushed in that technocratic direction
0: and this does go back I think to what was in Theresa May's mission statement for her leadership and if it is May versus Gove this will presumably be part of it because when she talks about a strong state and the kinds of problems that she wants to solve social mobility access to education and so on life chances health mental health her strong state is going to have to be staffed, presumably by... Maybe experts isn't the right word, but her strong state is going to have to, be, have to be staffed by people who know what they're doing. Also in her pitch, there is a talk, because everyone talks this way now, about reviving democracy, including presumably the possibilities of federal or local democracy too. But this, this tension in our politics is not going away between a strong state made up of people who know things that the public don't know and a revival of our democracy that gives the public greater outlets to express their frustrations, hopes and fears about the future.
1: I agree. And I think there's something else that we should bear in mind is, is that one of the things that's happened since 2008 is pretty much that the entire burden of economic policy has been put on central banks because of fundamental response across the world but particularly obviously in the West, to the crash has been a monetary one. It has been quantitative easing and zero interest rates policy, indeed lower than zero interest rates policy in some places now. The whole shift towards central bank independence basically rested on a technocratic argument that central banks were capable of delivering price stability in a way in which democratic politicians were not. That was a fundamental case for shifting from politicians deciding interest rates to central banks deciding interest rates. That was kind of accommodated in democratic politics without a great deal of reaction against it. But I think that underlying all these sort of, I'm not trying to suggest for a moment that Brexit is a small issue, but underlying these issues that we've been talking about are some huge structural fault lines, and one of them is this, is, is that the principal instrument of economic policy in today's world was taken out of democratic politics in a period in which it was going to become more important than ever before. So that fault line isn't going away. In some sense, I think you might see actually more democratic rebellion once people increasingly understand what actually is going on and once the consequences of quantitative easing and zero interest rates policy work their way through not only the economic system, but other countries' politics in the West as well.
0: There's so much we could talk about so much we could fight about Uh, um i've got a couple of things i still want to talk about so one i want to ask finbar i mean you 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 don't have to talk about this at length but um certainly since last week's podcast one or two people have mentioned to me when we talked about the constitutional implications we didn't say anything about ireland um we didn't say anything about what might happen not just in northern ireland but also the implications for um the republic as well uh and there is a view, there was a view expressed before the result, there's been a view expressed since, that in some ways this is most consequential for the island of Ireland um, and that that's where we might see the most friction in the short term. Is that, is that right?
3: I think it's absolutely right. And one of the incredible lapses in the debate coming up to the referendum was any conversation about Northern Ireland, given that it is the land border between the United Kingdom and then the rest of the European Union. There is a significant concern that long-term uncertainty and potential for Brexit could revive some of the worst violence that happened in Northern Ireland through the Troubles. And one of the issues is that a lot of younger voters may not have any memory or sight of what happened and what it was like to go through checkpoints and what it was like to have a militarised environment in Belfast and Londonderry, Derry and other parts of Northern Ireland. If you look at the returns from Northern Ireland, all of the border counties voted Remain three out of four parts of Belfast voted remain and then the rest of the country voted leave. So it's very much a northeast versus southwest split in terms of the geography of Northern Ireland. Under the Good Friday or the Belfast Agreement, take your pick for how you want to refer to it. There is a provision for a border poll and that question has been raised. That's down to the Secretary of State from Northern Ireland as to whether or not they feel that there is the context in which they believe the majority of people within Northern Ireland would want to become... Uh, united again with Ireland, that there is a reason to hold that poll. Um, I don't think you can call the EU referendum uh, a reason that you can say that there is now a majority of people having voted Remain now want to be part of the Republic or part of a united Ireland. I don't think that's the case. I think, however, it has made the discussion alive again. And so that one's not going to go away either. Um, in terms of the whole island of Ireland, it's a huge issue. And it comes at a time when Irish politics is also unstable. Because we had a election which didn't lead to a conclusive result. We've got a minority government which is trying to find its way through a lot of very difficult economic circumstance. And it's trying to look in a number of directions at the same time. It wants to say it is a good European citizen because of its history with Europe and because of what it allowed it to do over the last number of years. It has had this technocratic issue of trying to survive the different packages in economic Policies that have been put either imposed upon it or that it's put upon itself. But at the same time, it doesn't want to ignore the fact that it has massively deep social ties with the UK. It has the common travel arrangements. It has quite a significant Irish population, including myself, living in the United Kingdom. So I kind of have to be careful how I say this. So right now, there is a lot of flux around Ireland. Could it benefit if the UK decides to break up and leave the European Union Dublin is a very, very nice place for a lot of companies to want to headquarter themselves, especially financial institutions, to then make passporting into the rest of the European Union easier. But overall, you're likely to see a direct economic hit on the Republic at the same time as you'll see an economic hit for the United Kingdom. And and
0: just one more quick question, which relates to what you've just talked about, but also is part of the broader implications of this. I mean, one thing that has happened, not just as a result of this referendum, but what's developed in British politics, since the Scottish referendum is the opening of the door to this kind of plebiscitary way of resolving questions. And I've always assumed that the one part of the UK where plebiscitary politics is really dangerous, is Northern Ireland. I mean, is that is that right that this the default assumption now that when things get really difficult, you're going to have to have this kind of vote, and the calls for these various kinds of referendums on the the big questions that that's Dangerous in in Northern Ireland, or or is that actually possibly going to be the solution?
3: Well, I don't think it's dangerous in Northern Ireland. It's written into the fabric of the Good Friday Agreement. People understood that that was the way in which you were able to get agreement at that point in time. At at that point, but But, but
0: this becomes the sort of default way you then resolve difficult questions going forward. I don't
3: don't think it becomes the default for all questions, but on the question of identity, uh, membership of the uh, island of Ireland, or membership of the United Kingdom, I think it was understood at that point in time that that was how it would have to be carried forward along with provisions for anybody living in Northern Ireland to claim either British or Irish citizenship. Um, And so if you want one of the stranger moments in the whole of this campaign from a Northern Irish perspective, is that the son of Ian Paisley, Ian Paisley Jr., uh, staunch unionist, head of the DUP, had advised everybody in Northern Ireland to apply for an Irish passport to give themselves options that I would never have in my lifetime imagined seeing.
0: Okay, a couple more things. I said a couple more last time, so I've added one. Helen, very briefly, just looking at my screen, the stock market is more or less exactly where it was before the vote. Um, So we've had the down, we've had the up.
3: The FTSE 100 is, the FTSE 250 is not. Okay,
0: and the pound is still obviously much, much lower. But nonetheless, some of the projections of doom and gloom haven't materialised. We're only a week on, these things all come out in the wash. But what's your sense of what's going on in the city at the moment? I mean, where, where are people putting their money on that kind of risk-on, risk-off, very, very short-termist view that the the traders take at the moment?
1: I think that the thing that's clear about the financial markets in the initial um, turbulence is is that a significant part of that was caused by the fact that the financial markets had called this entirely wrong, that they not just called it wrong in the week or so leading up to um, Brexit, but they called it spectacularly wrong on the night itself after having paid out vast sums of money for polling that told them rubbish and then bet upon it. So all that had to unravel before we get any real idea about what the overall financial market reaction to Brexit has been. It seems to me that the point of pressure that has come out most acutely in the financial market aftermath is actually Italian banks. Italian banks are in significant trouble. The Italian government's looking now to have to provide a bailout of some kind, or at least some support to banks that's going to run into difficulties with EU law, is is the German government doesn't seem that keen on helping the Italian banks out at the moment. Yet at the same time, the German government has got a huge problem on its hands with Deutsche Bank. The IMF have just issued a report saying that Deutsche Bank is the biggest single risk to systemic st- stability in the global system. So there's a lot bigger things out there in one sense than Brexit. Having said that, Brexit is clearly the trigger for the Italian banks issue and some of the Deutsche Bank issues coming to a head. I mean, the Deutsche Bank issue has been actually mounting all um, year. I think in terms of the British position in this, as Finn says, there is a difference between what's happened to the FTSE 250 um, compared to the FTSE 100. At the same time, though, I think you can say that actually... This is now a known unknown to use Donald Rumsfeld's distinctions. There is a lot of problems for any British financial corporation, whether it's bank or anything else, that's starting to think, okay, maybe we should move some people to France, say, to give an example, because there is now huge unknown unknowns about what's going on in France because of the contagion effect, the fact that they've got a presidential election next year. And so I think that what we're going to see is ongoing contagion from this but it is actually going to focus increasingly on the places where what happens next is unknown. The British unknown is relatively limited in this sense in that over the next few months Britain has to work out a trading relationship with the EU and there is a limited range of options available. What can happen in the Eurozone? There's far both more possibilities and darker possibilities in the future.
0: Okay, finally, darker possibilities, that uh, gives us a chance. And you, you, that was sobering. And <laughs> I can tell you the faces of the people around the table looked a little chilled by that. I got an email uh, during the week from someone saying that our podcast last weekend, Aaron, you're exempt from this because you, you were chuckling somewhere else. Our podcast last week was too flippant given the seriousness of the situation and that the assumption of the person who emailed me was that we were in shock. Maybe we were in shock. But I didn't think we were too flippant. I thought, um, I mean, I think, first of all, I think there has to be some levity for any of these things. And also, I'm not, I don't know how bad this is. Bad things have happened. And certainly, the sort of upsurge in racism and so on is is distressing. But I still have a sense that relative to bad case political scenarios, we, we don't know that we're there yet. All of you, any of you, and again, Finbar looks sceptical. Do you have a sense a week on that um, these are really dark times?
4: Yeah. First off, that's just what Finbar looks like. So he doesn't really look sceptical. No, because
0: we've been looking at him around this table for a long time, and he's crosser, definitely, than he (laughs) he normally is. Look, you can hear, (laughs) that was a cross laugh.
4: I'm actually of the opinion, and and I share this somewhat with our colleague in the department, Chris Bickerton, who uh, published something in Foreign Policy recently, saying that basically Brexit will be a conscious uncoupling rather than a nasty divorce. I see Finbar shaking his head so he can come back on this. But the overall point that he made, which I agree with, which is the people who are most upset might also have the least amount of leverage, which is to say Eurocrats are very upset about this, but uh, political leaders in other EU states have an incentive to make sure that this is not as painful as it could be. Now, my qualification to that would be the following, and it mainly is, is dark times for the UK rather than uh, necessarily the rest of the world. But uh, first off, when you need a uh, I think it's 20 of 27 members to approve of exit negotiations. This gives a lot of leverage to whatever recalcitrant member or member who's interested in kind of uh, leveraging the situation for their own interests, a lot of influence over, over the bargaining process. So that's one thing, needing a kind of supermajority or qualified uh, voting majority plus 65% of the population uh, to approve of any agreement. The other thing is uh, this this technical wonkish term called asset specificity, where a lot of people have pointed out, well, Britain is a major market for the European Union, and also, right, it's a major seller to the European Union. So this should have a moderating effect. The problem with that is the costs and benefits of trading with the EU are much more concentrated on Britain compared to when you divide them by 27 member states, although obviously trade is not equally divided amongst the remaining 27 member states of the EU. And this only really gives Britain leverage, again, if there's asset specificity, which means Britain is a source for certain products or a market for certain products that nowhere else could could substitute for, right? That it's a specific place. Uh, and that is rare in economics and international relations uh, more generally, right? There's only so many Suez canals and uh, out there. Yeah, so we're
0: falling back on Adele and Tom Hiddleston. Uh, we're going to have to be relatively brief because we really could go on and on and on. Uh
2: I'll give everyone a say on this, Chris, how dark are the times that we're living in? They could be extremely dark indeed. I think we've got the most complicated constitutional, political and economic crisis for the United Kingdom, certainly that I can remember, very possibly for 100 years. And we've got a political class that is not especially good at what it does. It doesn't have a great deal of public confidence. And Most of the members of parliament are not especially inspiring politicians. They don't seem to be especially good at what it is that they do. So there's an enormous challenge here for somebody to provide political leadership that can command both support inside their own party in parliament and with a broader electorate. And it's not at all clear where that's going to come from. I think it matters more at the moment what's going on inside the Conservative Party, because the Conservative Party is the governing party. It has an overall majority. It's got the opportunity now to make a transition to stable leadership That in a parliament that still has four years to run. But I think an awful lot of things can happen, and there's an awful lot of prospects for things to go very badly wrong. So I'm a pessimist. But then over the last decade, I've been a pessimist. So to that extent, no change. Fimba. I think that
3: it's really dark. I think that we're at a moment in time where the Conservatives are trying to work out um, who wants to be Prime Minister. They're not trying to run the country. Uh, The Labour Party is having an identity crisis and it's about to fracture. The union could split and a great number of people who think that they voted for something are going to be incredibly disappointed. So anybody who says to me, oh, sure, it'll be fine. We'll get the internal politics of the party sorted out. We'll get back to politics as usual. We'll trigger Article 50 and we'll have some nice negotiation and then all will be fine, I think is ignoring the realities that they're facing. The other thing I would say is I tried to, in my head, sequence out what might happen. So the leadership elections and then getting to a point where you might have a general election and or Article 50 triggered, etc. I couldn't get a sequence that I thought was in any way stable. There are so many unknowns out there. So I actually would raise one other prospect – Brexit isn't a certainty we might never get there so let's have that conversation as well
0: And Helen I said last week that we were going to get back to talking about Donald Trump and I'm kind of pleased that we haven't in a way because <laughs> what's the point? There'll be plenty of time for that or maybe there won't so you don't have to talk about Donald Trump I was going to ask you about the convention and Aaron as well we'll, we'll, we'll reconvene at some point so just that, that question should we be being sort of um, sonorous and portentous about this?
1: I think that we have to get our heads out of talking about Britain and start talking about the world and start talking about the West. And I think that this is just a, a symptom of something that has much deeper causes. And um, as you know, David, because I've said this to you before, I don't think that we're living in Kansas anymore. But I don't think we've been living in Kansas since at least 2010.
0: And Kansas here, by the way, is a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> From the Wizard of Oz. Oh, like Kansas? <laughs> no, it's not. Look out the window.
1: I shouldn't be laughing while I'm saying this. Um, We're being
0: flippant again. Uh.
1: But I, my view is is that something profoundly changed in the whole international, and particularly the western part of the international order, with the crash in 2008 and its uh, aftermath and the policy response to it. And we can talk about the minutiae of British politics, this and that, but actually the things that are being played out at the moment are part of that. And that world, the economic and political world that existed before 2008 is gone and it isn't coming back. And we have to learn to live in this one.
0: And I very much recommend if people want to Google, we're not in Kansas anymore, Helen Thompson. Helen wrote an excellent piece a few weeks ago, laying this out before any of this happened. um, And it's a salutary read. OK, thank you, everyone, very much. Um, I'll just have my final look. (laughs) Who else is standing for the Conservative Party leadership? No, just Gove and Johnson and May and a few others. Uh, I think we're going to have to get back together again, but people are probably... uh, You've got plans for the summer, so I don't know who will be here or when, but we will try and keep these conversations going. And also for people who listen to this, again, do please subscribe so these things pop up when we do them. But in the autumn, we're going to try and go back to something much more regular because I don't think we could say that things are going to be less interesting in the autumn. And we'd be delighted if you would all listen in when we do that and we'll let you know. Until then in a very serious voice. My name is David Runciman, and this has been the Cambridge University Podcast
3: Election. From
1: Cambridge, you're going to get even more abusive emails with this flippancy. <laughs> flippancy about flippancy. I don't think anyone could
0: say we were particularly flippant towards the end. <laughs> no. Jeez. yeah, man, flippancy is fine. We're all dead. We're, all dead. we're We're buggered. was our... good. I was good. That was also quite contentious. <laughs> <Yeah>.
3: <laughs>